Lord, we in this place, as Romans 15 says, with one voice we lift up our praise to you and we declare in this place, to you alone we adore. To you alone belongs the praise and the glory. To you alone, because you are the one who is majestic in all things. You are the one who is holy and set apart. You are the one who is infinite. You are the one who reigns as king of kings. You are the one who is more beautiful than anything we could ever think or comprehend or even imagine. You are the exalted, the holy, the one who is lifted up. And I pray that these kinds of thoughts would wash over our minds and, God, that you would be pleased to let them penetrate our hearts so that our whole being would feel the weightiness and the awe and the reverence of what it is to be in the presence of God. And I pray, Lord, indeed, you are with us as we know you are. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be in this place together to sing and to be able to lift our hearts to you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us by your grace breath to breathe. God, thank you that you have given us this day in which the sun has risen, assures the dawn, as we remember from last week. God, thank you that you have preserved us as we slept last night and awaken us. And this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So God, grant to us the kind of gladness and the kind of joy that would bring you glory and honor. Lord, you indeed are the king who rules and reigns over all things. And in light of that, Lord, we once again as a church come before you and ask, as the king who rules and reigns over all nations, that you would watch over what is happening in Ukraine and you would end the war. By a simple word, you can cause people to cease to be. By a simple word, you can cause bullets to stop. By a single word, you could cause tanks to stop in their tracks. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to end the war. And there are more conflicts raging all around the world, Lord. We take particular we pay particular attention to Ukraine, but all over the world, Lord, there's hostility, there's injustices, there's all kinds of strife, and we pray, God, we pray that you would intervene, God, that you would raise up your church and that they would be agents of change. God, we do pray that wherever your church is to be found on this earth, God, that we, as your, as your bride, that we would be salt and light that we would be found mending the wounds, attending to the dying, giving hope to those who are despairing. For we know Jesus Christ has already conquered our greatest enemy, death. And because of that, one day, all warfare will cease. All sin will be vanquished. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. No more death. And until that day comes, Lord, we pray in hope that you would be pleased to use us. And until that day comes, we as a church cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, good morning, church. I want to let you know, too, uh, my thanks to the choir, especially the worship team, because uh, Pastor David texted us at about 5.30 in the morning and said, I'm sick. <laughs> I can't make it. And so we were all like, all right, who's leading worship? <laughs> and uh, so these folks were willing to step up and step in. So my thanks to Jeremy and the worship team and everyone. And it's a little bit stressful this morning because we had to change the song at the last minute and do all a bunch of stuff. So um, I'm grateful that the Lord has been pleased to, to let us have a good time of singing together. And so I'm just grateful uh, for that. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, um, I want to invite you to open it up to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, we're going to continue on in our series through the book of Hosea where we are learning about God's relentless pursuit of his people. And uh, while you find and make your way to Hosea, let me tell you about something pretty cool happening here at the church. Uh, more precisely, it's happening at Golden Hills Christian School. Uh, we actually have our open house tomorrow night. So tomorrow night from 6.30 to 8 o'clock, Golden Hills Christian School will have an open house. Uh, anyone who's interested in the school wants to know more about it. If you know neighbors and friends who are looking for an alternative uh, school, maybe they don't know about Golden Hills Christian School, uh, we invite you to, to bring them along, and we'll do anything we can to help answer whatever questions you have or address uh, anything you know, that you may be thinking about. So I want to make sure you're aware of that. Golden Hills Christian School open house tomorrow, 6.30 to 8 in the building next door that houses our school. Um, I had this whole introduction, and I scrapped it this morning, and um, one of the reasons was because throughout this week, I, I was just, I'm reading through, anticipating, and prayerfully considering what the Lord might have for us, uh, study-wise, wise, uh, preaching series in 2023. Yes, I'm already planning 2023 because it just, you just have to get ahead of these things, and um, so I'm reading through, and um, I just started to notice there was this theme in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, and um, it's found in from the Apostle Paul who, who talks about the Old Testament, who talks about these writings, the scriptures, and he said something which has just struck me, and so I'm gonna open with this. He says that the Old Testament scriptures are given to us so that we can learn from the examples that we find there, either things to do or things not to do. But either way, as we read the Old Testament, we see these examples for us, these people and these events and these circumstances, and they help us to understand what we should and shouldn't do. And what we learn in, in Romans 15, for instance, is that through reading Scripture, especially the Old Testament, we learn endurance, we learn encouragement, and as we read about these people, these places, these circumstances, we are well informed as New Testament people about how we can live to the glory of God. And so I was thinking about that as we come to the book of Hosea because we're going to come to another section where God once again is talking about sin, he's talking about judgment and all that kind of stuff. And if you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times, it seems like. But remember a couple weeks ago I said every time that we encounter this theme, I want us to see it from a different perspective because that's what God is doing. He's helping us to see it. You see it here? Okay, do you see it here? Okay, now do you see it here? And as he rotates and as he changes perspective, it helps to unlock for us a new perspective so that way we can internalize the things that he is sharing. And so in Hosea chapter 8 and Hosea chapter 9, verses 9, that's what we're going to look at today, we see God coming once again to his people and warning them about the judgment, but we see something different happen, and that is we read that the punishment is basically here. It's kind of not too late, but basically it's too late. The ship has sailed. 
And so you just feel the weightiness of this. But what we're going to see is that although God has been so gracious to his people and they have turned their backs on him, God is going to cause this great reversal in the fortunes of his people. But then he's going to do something so outlandishly loving and gracious, he is actually going to promise a new covenant. And we're going to see how Jesus fulfills that new covenant and how Jesus is the one who causes the greatest reversal. And uh, how it fits together, I believe, is so beautiful. Um, And I pray I do justice to this text. So chapter 8 will be one section. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, will be a second section. And then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. That will be the third section. And what we're going to see in chapter 8 is how uh, this chapter is unified around this theme of self-reliance. Israel is going to self-appoint kings. It's going to have man-made idols. There are self-preserving alliances that are uh, gotten into. They're inventing their own religious worship. They're seeking to impress other people and themselves with their commitment to comfort and opulence. And then chapter 9 is when God brings the hammer. And so that's kind of how it'll be together. But What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little section at a time. So we'll go verses 1 through 3, and then we'll go 4 through 6, 7 through 10, 11 through 14, and you'll see how it works. So I'll read a section at a time, say some things, and then we'll continue on. So Hosea chapter 8, verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. I want to say this, that verse 3 is basically the summary of verse 1 and 2. Basically, it's this. Israel has spurned the good. Now, the good that he is referring to is the good of having God's presence among his people, that God would dwell with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people, that he would provide for them and meet all their needs, And they have decided to spurn that. And it doesn't mean that they just reject it. It means that they not only willfully reject it, but emotionally they have this kind of disdain towards God. In other words, they're mocking God and laughing at God as they reject God. So here's God wanting to do good to his people. Here's the good, and they're like, we don't want that. Get out of our face. We hate you. And so the enemy shall pursue them. In other words, they are going to experience covenant curses. And so that's where we get back to verse 1. And this kind of helps us understand how we got, how, you know, why God says that in verse 3. It's this. Set the trumpet to your lips. In other words, about to make an announcement. And you've done this before. If you ever have kids running around and you're scared they're going to get hit by a car, you whistle. Or if you want to get people's attention in a room and everyone's talking and not paying attention, you whistle. And then everyone just stops what they're doing, and everyone looks at you. You're like, all right, I've got something to say. So it's kind of like that. Put the trumpet to your lips and, and blow that thing and, and get people's attention because I've got something to say. And here's what God wants to say. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Now, that word vulture there could also mean eagle. And uh, either way, it's the same kind of idea. If it's an eagle, that is the uh, icon that represented the Assyrian Empire. And so if an eagle is over the house of the Lord, it means that 
soon Assyria is going to invade and they're going to do some bad stuff. Or secondly, if it is a vulture, then you know what a vulture is. A vulture is just flying around hovering because it's like somebody's about to die and I'm about to get fed. So either way, this is like a gloomy kind of situation. So blow the trumpet, some bad stuff's about to go down. And why is it going to go down badly? Because they, Israel, have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Now, these are not two separate things. They're one and the same. They just have two components. To transgress God's covenant is also to rebel against his law. And the reason that is is because in the old covenant, when the covenant was enacted, so too the law was given. So when you rebel against the law, you are basically transgressing the covenant. And if you transgress the covenant, it's because you're breaking the law. The two go together. And because the nation of Israel has transgressed the covenant that God has made with her, and they have broken the laws, bad stuff's about to come down. And so, blow the trumpet and let people know it's not all roses. So when we go back to like Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, we see that something is happening here where God is making this accusation, this controversy. He's bringing the people into his uh, courtroom, so to speak, where he is the judge and he is judging them according to his law. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So that's God's assessment. No integrity and faithfulness, no love from me, no knowledge of me. It's all bad. Okay. Now let's go back to Hosea chapter 8, verse 2. Oh, wait. No, let me, let me do this. Let me, let me go to verse 6 of chapter 4. This will make sense. The people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you, my people, have rejected knowledge. They're going to be punished. So keep that in mind. There's no knowledge of the Lord in the land. People are going to be destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. Now let's go to Hosea chapter 8, verse 2. God has just said bad things are about to happen. Better blow the trumpet. You guys have broken my law. You've broken the covenant. But they respond, my God, we, Israel, we know you. In other words, what are you talking about we don't know you? Of course we know you. We're Israel, which reminds us of the dialogues that Jesus had with the religious leaders in his time where he told them that they needed to repent because they were trusting in their works for salvation. They needed to trust in God himself. And the people said, we are descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said, uh, God can make descendants of Abraham come from those rocks. That doesn't matter. It's about your obedience. In other words, Israel is saying, wait a minute, and they're putting forth their identity, and they're saying, my identity is what determines my salvation. What are you talking about? And here is what they mean is basically we, because of our identity as Israelites, we know you. What are you talking about, God? And so here's this battle, so to speak. God says, you don't know me. There is no knowledge of me. And the people go, yeah, we do. What are you talking about? You have competing opinions. Who's going to win that battle? But here's the thing that I want us to see 
is that many of us in this room, including myself, when we are confronted by God through his word, oftentimes we'll want to correct God. Actually, it's not that. Actually, here's a better way to think about it. Whoa. And what that does is it simply reveals the condition of our hearts. We are in rebellion against God. How is that evidenced? By the fact that when God speaks, we go, "Uh uh-uh. That's rebellion. And if you remember, the charges against Israel was that they don't know God, but they say, no, 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 we're not guilty. No, 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 no. We're, we're, We're good, we're good. But if you turn to Hosea chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, what you see is this. God has this very clear, very clear teaching that the people of Israel, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Meaning you can't do enough good works for you to go back to God and get in right relationship with him. And the reason is because there's a spirit of whoredom within them. Now, remember, we talked about we want that, that word whoredom is gross, right? It's like, ooh, I don't like that. Can we change the word? No. And the reason is we want to feel the sinfulness of sin. We want to feel icky about this, this subject. And so we leave it there, and we understand it's the spirit of sin. Now, because the spirit of sin is within them, it causes them to not know the Lord. And when you don't know the Lord, because of the spirit of sin that is living within you, then there's nothing you can do to be welcomed into God's presence. You need a new spirit. That's the only way. You need a new spirit, which then will give you new knowledge, which then will enable you to come to the Lord. But in verse 6, they try anyways. They come with their flocks and herds, and they go to seek the Lord. They're like, ah, forget that. We're going to go anyways. What does God know? But when they go to seek the Lord, they will not find him because he is withdrawn from them. Their deeds have made a separation between them and God. It's the spirit of sin which causes no knowledge of God. And as we saw last week in Hosea, Hosea calls his people, calls his countrymen and women in chapter 6, verse 1, let's go return to the Lord. Let's return to the Lord in heartfelt repentance. Let's go. Let's love the Lord as we once did. Come on, let's repent. Let's do it. And so many people probably are like, yeah, let's do that. That sounds good. But then God knows their heart and knows that their love for him is like the Bay Area fog. It'll be gone by the afternoon. And so God doesn't put his trust in human beings. And what you want to see, I hope you see anyways, is that God is making a connection between what we claim that we know, and the actual way in which we live. Israel lived in disobedience, but claimed to know God. God says, you don't know me, because the evidence is that you're disobeying me. So let me tie the two together in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul says to the pure, That is, those whose hearts are pure, all things are pure. If you notice, the condition of your heart affects the perspective you have of the world. Pure heart, oh, look at all these pure things. But the defiled and unbelieving heart, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, 
that is those whose hearts are defiled and they are unbelieving, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So what the Apostle Paul is helping us understand is like, wait a minute, you can profess and you can self-proclaim anything you want, but the proof is in the pudding. The reality is you will know them by their fruits, as Jesus taught. Or look at the Apostle John. He says, whoever says, I know him, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. So knowing God and living in obedience to God go hand in hand. By being obedient, we don't receive God's love. Rather, the love we already have is made perfect through our obedience. In other words, the condition of our heart is going to have necessary consequences, and those necessary consequences are going to be our obedience or lack of obedience. And our obedience and lack of obedience is what helps us learn and grow in the love of God we already have because the condition of the heart precedes how one behaves. Now, here's the most sobering text on the topic, I believe, and it comes from the lips of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 7, where Jesus teaches that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why is that? Because self-proclaiming that you know God doesn't do anything. It needs to be a heart which is captivated by the love of God, which lives out that new identity in Christ through obedience. And on that day, that is the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and look at these three things. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And so what they're going to do is they're going to lay out all of their credentials for why they should get into the kingdom of heaven. And these are spectacular things. Hey, we prophesy. We're, we're calling forth God's word. Hey, we're casting out demons in Jesus' name. We're performing miracles. What further proof do you need that I'm a bona fide believer? I'm doing amazing, spectacular, sensational, mind-blowing, Instagrammable things. Isn't it obvious? And yet, Jesus says in verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, whoa. When you read something like that, it's almost like you need to take a step back and do some deep breathing. That's intense. And it makes me feel uncomfortable. To think that people could do amazing, sensational, world-changing, supernatural works in Jesus' name and still not get into heaven is scary. Yes. Because if you rely on your works, your deeds, or if you pursue certain things, not for Jesus' sake, but for your own, you don't get God. Let me say it this way. There are uh, pockets of Christianity where 
it is taught that the only evidence of salvation is things like tongues and miracles and prophecy and, and on and on. And so what ends up happening is people will pursue these evidences, but they will only pursue it through God to get the thing. I, I want the miracle, and I know God can give it to me. And so in the end, what they really want is the miracle, not God. But in reality, the way God has wired it in the Bible is like, no, 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 I give you like miracle or, or words spoken in another language in order for that to be a channel through which you get me. I'm the point. I'm the goal. But there are some people who go, no, 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 God is just the means, the end or the goal is something sensational, Instagrammable, world-changing. It's something I can experience and people can know me because of it. Are you guys follow, tracking with me? And that is one of those thoughts that we have to be very careful. And we should do well to look at the example of Israel and to ask ourselves the question, okay, Israel claimed to know God, but they're Evidence that they did not know God was in the way in which they lived? How am I living? And what does that reveal about my knowledge of God? And these are hard, hard questions that yield difficult, difficult answers, but they must be asked. And so what ends up happening with Israel is that from verses 4 through 14, what they're going to do is they're going to put forward kind of this, I don't know, I don't know how to word it, self-reliance. We'll just say it that way. Where they're going to depend on themselves and not on God. They're not going to worry about God at all. And how they're going to do that, they're going to set up a false king. They're going to do it without God's assistance. They're going to set up false way of worshiping. They're going to set up all kinds of idolatry. They're going to set up uh, different ways of going about sinning. It's just crazy. So we'll start verses 4 through 6. We see that they make puppet kings and puppet gods. They made kings, but not through me, God says. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, that is the silver and gold that God gave them, they made idols with it for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So let me stop here and help us understand what's going on here. Uh, in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 4, they made kings but not through me. It's probably a reference to King Saul. If you remember, the people of Israel are like, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. And God's like, you don't want that. I'm your king. And they're like, eh, we kind of do though. And so they set up their own king, King Saul, because he was tall and handsome. And of course, that is all the qualifications you need for being a king. And so here comes King Saul. He wreaks havoc on the nation. He is punished eventually. But we also know that it's probably a bunch of kings that came to the throne because of a series of assassinations. You remember this from last week. You have one king just killing, uh, getting killed by some other dude, and that dude becomes king. He's like, yeah, and then boo, he gets shot, and you're like, oh, man, and he reigns for a month. The next guy's a month. The next guy's two years, and you're like, man, who's, I don't even know who's king anymore. And God's just thinking, this is crazy. What's happening? So they set up princes, and I knew it not, leaders of the people. And God's like, I'm not in this. I have no idea what you're doing. 
And then he goes on in verse uh, 5 and 6 to talk about these golden calves. Uh, but it's actually two calves. One of them got stolen. We don't know what happened to it, but it's a calf, and it's in the city of Dan. Um, and Samaria is just a, a catchword for the whole northern kingdom. Let me give you some background on this because this will be helpful. I think it will be very helpful to you. It's found in um, 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, oh, it says... Second Kings. I changed that upstairs and it didn't work. All right. Apple. Uh, first Kings, okay? I told the first service that you would get the good one, but you got the bad one too, so it's all good. So in First Kings chapter 12, uh, what ends up happening is the nation is divided. The son of Solomon becomes the king. His name is Rehoboam, and he becomes the king of the southern kingdom called Judah. Whereas Jeroboam, which is a different guy, he actually becomes king of the northern kingdom. And so the kingdom gets divided, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, okay? Jeroboam is, uh, he's kind of insecure and all this kind of stuff. And so here's what he says. He says, if this people, that is the nation of Israel as a whole, but particularly the northern kingdom, if they go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, which was located in the southern kingdom, then the heart of this people will turn, against, or turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Obviously, this fool hasn't read the book of Exodus. Because if he would have read the book of Exodus, he would have known that there's a guy named Aaron who already did this. Aaron was a dude when Moses was up on the hill receiving the Ten Commandments and the law of God. The people became restless, and they're like, what are we going to do? And so uh, Aaron says, give me all your gold jewelry. And then he fashions a calf, and he goes, this is the God who parted the sea and redeemed you out of Israel. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, and they just worship him. So here's Jeroboam and all of his insecurities and all of his fears that he's going to lose his throne. And so he's like, hmm. So he gets a bunch of gold and silver together and he makes two calves. I mean, why one? Two is better. Duh. And so in getting these two calves, these two golden calves, here's what happens. He set one in Bethel and he set the other one Dan. So that's southern and northern cities. So that way, no matter where you live, you can get there. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. So think about this. He's just one sin on another. Like, you should have no other gods before me. I don't know. Commandment one. No graven images. Man, I'm not dealing with that one either. All the priests need to be Levites. Yeah, not so much. There's only one altar, and it's in Jerusalem. Yeah, but is it? Hmm. And he goes on. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, that is Passover. So he's like, yeah, let's not do Passover anymore. Let's do a different Passover. <gasps> so they do that, and they offered sacrifices on this altar. 
different sacrifices on a different altar for a different feast at a different temple with different gods. So he did it in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made, and he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. This fool just made it up. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is crazy. And if you go to Israel with us in November of 2022, we're going to have an opportunity to go to a place called Dan, Tel Dan. And they have excavated, the archaeologists have excavated the actual altar that was built where the calf was placed. The calf's gone, but the altar is still there. And we'll sit around on these steps and we'll read this story and some other stories and we'll sit there and we'll marvel. How could they do that? And it's one of the most eerie things you, you could experience. I, I just had goosebumps going on my body. I'm like, this is crazy. And the reason why I thought it was crazy was because here I was judging these people for worshiping um, these gods, but then I realized I'm not much better. Here's what I want to do is I want to help us to think more deeply about this. Let me ask this question. Why was Jeroboam doing these things? And what was it that he was truly worshiping? Was he truly worshiping a golden calf or multiple golden calves? Was he truly sacrificing on these altars and had all these priests and all this stuff? Was that really his main concern? That is what he was really worried about? And my answer would be no. That's not what he was primarily worried about. What was he worried about? He was worried about control. He was scared that if the people did something that he couldn't control, that he would get even more out of control. So in order to preserve control in his life, he created this elaborate system of idolatry to maintain the control he wanted. Now, how many of us here want to be in control totally of our lives? <laughs> and what are we willing to do? Crazy stuff. You and I are willing to do crazy stuff to maintain control. And when we lose control, we lose our minds. Think of the first several months of when COVID hit and we didn't know what in the world was going on. People were losing, I can't go to the gym. You don't have a gym membership. <laughs> That's not the point. You know, like, it's like, Calm down. We'll be okay. And he wanted power, right? They will go to Rehoboam. They'll abandon me. I won't have power anymore. And what happens when you're no longer the king of a vast empire? Oh, you lose wealth. And what happens when you're not in control, you don't have any power, you don't got any money? It's very uncomfortable. So he was worshiping, I believe, control, power, wealth, comfort. So what happens is Jeroboam, he has a deep heart idol. He really worships control power, wealth, and comfort, but those deep heart idols manifest themselves in the whole elaborate false worship stuff. And you and I do the same thing. I don't believe any one of us worships money in this room. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe any of you get a paper dollar bill and you're like, <gasps> and you put it down. Even if it was like a $100 bill, you wouldn't put it down and be like, 
And you just fall down and worship in tears. Or you hear somebody walking by with money in their pocket, and you're like, oh, is that money? Do you have money? And you put it on the ground, and you fall down, and you just caress it. I love it. I love coins. Nobody does that. What is it that you love when you love money? I think it's this. We love money and we worship money because we worship the power that money affords us. Money talks. We worship the comfort that money can buy. We worship the influence that money brings. And we can worship the respect that money can create. Do you see the difference? We don't love money. We love those deep heart idols, control, power, influence, respect, reputation, approval. And in order to get those things, we'll go through just about anything to get it. And we don't care what it takes or who it hurts to get it. I just want my desires to be met. And so... This is the way in which they were living. And God says at the end of verse 6, the calf of Samaria, which represents physically this whole elaborate idolatry of false worship, but also it represents the deep heart idols we each have in our hearts, whatever they may be. God says, I'm going to break them to pieces. So if you and I even control, we can worship money because of the control it gives us. God can break us from that enchantment by taking the money so that way we're out of control. And being out of control, oh no, I don't have the job, I don't have the money, I don't know what to do. God says, okay, are you done trying now? Because the moment that you're at the end of yourself, you might just be at the beginning of God. And God demands Obedience, but God also brings us to a place where he says, trust me, depend on me. And that's what he does for Israel. However, verse 7, Israel continues on in their life. They're sowing seeds into emptiness. Uh, you know this phrase. You've probably heard it before. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. In other words, they are sowing seeds of emptiness and nothingness, and what they're going to receive, what they're going to reap, is merely a whirlwind. Because I've said this a hundred times, you become what you worship. And honestly, paper and coins or what have you, if you worship these things, you become those things, which is lifeless and ultimately meaningless. Because as the old joke is, you never see a U-Haul you know, on, attached to the back of a hearst or whatever. You can't take it with you. We know that. And so Israel continues to do this false worship of Baal, which is the fertility god of the Canaanites. Fertility god, Baal, what happens is you went up on this hilltop on these things called the threshing floors. And at the threshing floor, what you would do is you'd bring all of your grain and then you'd have a, a pitchfork. And you would stick the pitchfork in the pile of grain. You would throw it in the air. And because it was on a hilltop, the winds that would come off the Mediterranean Sea would blow over the, the hilltops, and the chaff, that is the stuff you can't use, would blow off in the wind, but the grain is heavy enough to fall back down to the threshing floor. So they would, 
And there would be people that go over and they would, sorry, they would, they would broom the, the uh, I forgot where I was, the gr- heads of grain, and they would make a big pile over here, and the other people would continue to throw with their pitchfork all of the chaff into the air. Now, when nighttime came, because Baal was the fertility god, they believed that in order to get a large harvest, you needed to do certain things to win his approval. And when nighttime came, the way in which they got Baal's approval is they engaged in all kinds of disgusting sexual acts throughout the night. And so on every hilltop and every threshing floor, if you went there at night, it's not, it's not good. It's bad. We're talking dozens of people engaged in all kinds of nasty things. So now let's go back to verse 7. The standing grain has no heads. You keep doing all these false worship things thinking that, you know, if I perform all these acts, we're going to have a great harvest, and yet the standing grain has no heads. Not only that, but when it does yield, there's no flower. Um, Strangers come and devour it. So you're working yourself to the bone, and you're not getting any of the benefit. The crops are not producing, and even when they do produce, enemies come in and take the stuff you do have because it's God's discipline. Israel is swallowed up already. They are among the nations as a useless vessel. So what God is saying to the people is, look, you guys, you're just worshiping, and it's just worthless. And because you're worshiping a worthless, nothing God, you yourselves are becoming worthless, nothing people. Verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and the princess shall soon writhe because of the tribute. And what is he talking about here? The people try to evade God's discipline. And how they try to evade God's discipline is by trusting in their diplomacy. So they're like, hey, look, we don't have much grain, we don't have much wine. Tell you what, though, in Assyria, they got a lot. So let's get all our money together. Let's pull the resources together. Let's make a trade agreement with Assyria, and we'll get all of the grain and wine that we really want. And so God looks at that and goes, what are you doing? I'm disciplining you. That's why you don't have the harvest you you want. I'm disciplining you so that you can turn to me. And instead of turning to me, you're turning away from me and going to Assyria. So what I have to do is I have to chase you there. And I'm going to make it difficult for you in Assyria. In other words, you will not escape my discipline, Israel. You will not escape it. You cannot evade it. But you remember, Israel is in rebellion. And so God is going to discipline them. Like I've already said, when you have deep, hard idols of things like security or comfort or control... God will often put you in a place where you will become insecure, uncomfortable, and you will feel out of control. So you have a fork in the road to decide whether or not you're going to return to God under his loving discipline, or you're going to make a different decision, and you're going to run after other things and try to come up with a solution on your own. And you and I, if we're being honest, most of the time we try to run away from God, not to him. If we have the idol of insecurity or and the idol of comfort or the idol of control or whatever, we'll just run to the next thing to try to satisfy that desire. And you see it all the time. 
well, this didn't work for me, so I'll try something new. Like crafting, I don't know, didn't work for me, so now I'm gonna, I'm gonna join the bicycle club. Um, well, golfing doesn't do it for me. I throw my clubs into the lake. So I guess I'm gonna take up squash. Like, what is, what is going on? Or because you really want people's approval and you didn't get it from this person or that person, so what? You cut them out of your life and you run to the next relationship. The next person will give me what I want. And then that doesn't work. Then the next person will give me what I want. Or what we do is we will pursue some cultural fad that will feed our insatiable idolatry. Maybe if I tried this, maybe if I tried that, that'll work. That'll satisfy. And every single time, it doesn't. And we see this all the time, brothers and sisters. I'm not going to speak hypothetically anymore. Let's get concrete. When this happens, it often manifests itself in, I'm switching jobs. Because if I get a new job, the grass is greener there. I'll be better. I'll get this. I'll get that. I'll get this. I got to switch churches because obviously that church is better. And so it's greener grass. I'll get this. I'll get this. I'll get this. I got to switch my spouse. They're obviously not doing it for me. They're not making me happy. So greener pastures on the other side. So that will help me. That, that will satisfy. I got to get a new car. This old bucket, man, it's not working for me. I got to get something else. I something respectable. That will do it. I got to try this new diet. It's just not pants aren't fitting like they used to. Button broke the other day. Man. How about a new hairstyle? Yeah, what if I cut my hair short? What if I grow it out long? What if I change its color? Every time we do these things, I want to at least ask you the question, have you considered that maybe why, you're pers- why, why you are pursuing that is because it is a deep heart idol that you are refusing to attend to, and you're just going to keep feeding that idol, and you're going to keep being miserable. And so, like, honestly, as, a, as your pastor, somebody who loves you, seriously, consider it at least. Because even if you get that thing you long for, it may not satisfy, and you'll be right back to square one. But I'm telling you, as the Bible says, anyone who puts their trust in the Lord will not be disappointed. In our day today, this is a challenge. I don't, I don't mitigate that or minimize that. It's a challenge. But it's at least something we should do. And then we jump into verses 11 through 14, and we see that Israel has forgotten God, but God will not forget their sins which is not the greatest feeling, but by the end of the sermon, you'll, you'll see why this is important to highlight. We read in verse 11 and 12, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, remember they created this elaborate process of false worship, they have become to God altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. So here is Israel in chapter uh, 8, verse 2, that says, God, we know you. And God says, I wrote my law plainly in a book, and you still have an elaborate worship system that goes against my law. What do you mean you know me? You don't know me. Even if I was to write new laws in more plain language, you would still look at it and go, oh, that's weird. I don't get it. What? What? As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and they eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. 
This concept of altars is really important because God designed it that there would be one altar upon which when blood is shed, the worshiper who offered the sacrifice will have their sins atoned for. Awesome. A holy God is going to, with his wrath, pour it out on me. But in his mercy, made a way for me to not have to face his wrath. What a merciful God. And yet the people go, eh, Jeroboam particularly, eh, let's make other altars. I know God said there's only one altar, but let's make a lot of altars. Think about it. Then a lot of people can do a lot of stuff in a lot of places. It's easier, quicker, more efficient. And what God says is, no, no, no. You haven't made it easier for people to have their sins atoned for. You've just made it easier for people to sin. So now they need atonement more than they ever have. You've made it worse. Likewise, today there's people espousing that you can be forgiven of sins in all kinds of ways other than Jesus because it's more efficient, it's more loving to say that you come through Christ or you don't come to God at all. And we say, no, no, there's only one altar by which the blood shed there is going to give us forgiveness of sins, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. And if we multiply ways to get to God, all we're doing is creating more sin, not solution. And I know in our day, as we see these people worshiping all kinds of crazy ways, I know in our day, we don't tend to think about the manner in which we worship. We just figure it's obvious that, well, God accepts my worship of him so long as it's sincere. But let me ask you this question. As you look at, remember, when we look in the book of Leviticus or whatever, and you look at all the laws about how to worship God and how not to worship God, and then you see what Israel's doing, they're just making stuff up. And then God's saying, I do not accept this. I have to ask the question, is God of the Old Testament different from the God of the New Testament? And if God of the Old Testament cared about how we worshiped him, wouldn't the God of the New Testament care as well? I think so. And because of that, let me show you from Hebrews 12. Let us as Christians in the New Testament, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a kingdom that can't be shaken. And because of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Which, if nothing else, what that verse tells me that God, uh, we need to offer God acceptable worship is, is to say there are ways in which we think that we're worshiping God when in reality it's unacceptable to him. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what is acceptable? And we wish the New Testament was clearer than it is and more specific than it is, but we have to work with what we have. And at least we know this. Acceptable worship to God is worship which is reverent and awe-filled or awesome. I hate using the word awesome because people are like, this pizza is awesome. Like, it's not awesome. It doesn't overwhelm your senses with trembling. <laughs> it's just pizza. And so because of a verse like this, because of what we see in the Bible, it, it's caused me, it's caused the elders, it's called our, our, our pastors here at Golden Hills to ask hard questions, and it's questions like this. Are we in our public worship services creating an environment through what we say, what we sing, how we pray, how we preach, 
where people understand this place is a place of reverence and awe. And so, as you probably know, we've changed the songs we sing and how we sing them. We've added elements in our worship service to bring about a little more seriousness. We want to feel the weightiness of God. And I'm not interested in shallow, happy, happy, fun, fun, you know, trivial Christianity. Because I think a lot of people will be like, man, my church was awesome. Worship was loud and exciting, and people jumped everywhere. And it was amazing. Pastor was a hilarious. He could have been a stand-up comedian. And then on Judgment Day, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. I, I don't want that to be on my, on my head. So we try to pray and preach and sing in a, in a, in a way we try to adopt this kind of phrase. We, we want to we be serious and at the same time understand that God himself is the source of joy. So I want to take joy seriously. And all my joy, I want to be serious about it. <laughs> all right. Here's how A.W. Tozer put it. This, this is what's helped me so much. A.W. Tozer wrote this book, Knowledge of the Holy. I read it every other year, and it's been very influential in my life. Here's what he writes. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most significant fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. Because idolatry is, at bottom, a slander against God's character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is and substitutes for the true God one made in its own likeness. So the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed, and undiminished that noble concept of God which we receive from generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. So let me say it this way. Middle school students and high school students, you may be bored out of your mind for 90% of this sermon or any sermon. But the the most loving and the best thing I can do for you is to show you your God and to show you how high and exalted your God is, to show you how loving he is, to show you his grace, to show you his mercy, to tell you of the seriousness of sin, to warn you that if you play games with God, it won't end well. But at the same time, 
God is so abundant in his welcome that even when you sin, he still beckons you, come. Come find your rest in me. And so the future awaits you, middle school students and high school students. The future awaits you, and this world is vicious, and it's mean, and it's difficult, and you will tear your hair out at times. But when you know that you have a God who is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, he's all-loving, he's everywhere at all times, present for you, accessible for you, and he knows exactly what you need in your time of need, then in those tumultuous moments, you can have a sure, rock, steady anchor for your soul that God is there. And so, middle school students and high school students, we want you in the church service. And you are welcomed here. And we love it that you're here. So listen up. (laughs) Chapter 9. Oh, no, I skipped something. Chapter 8, verse 13. The second half of it. Now God will remember their iniquity. God will punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten their maker. They built high places. Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send fire upon the cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Here's what God is saying through verses 13 and 14. You have forgotten me, but God says, there's one thing I'll never forget, all your sin. Oh, no. None of it? You won't forget any of it? None of it. Everything I you're like, oh, no. Leave that there, okay? Chapter 9. So rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved prostitutes' wages. Look at this. On all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. God made this amazing, miraculous work in the nation of Israel, bringing them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, bringing them into their own land, feeding them with milk and honey. And all he said was, obey me, stay with me, and it's all yours. And they said, eh, not so much. So God says, I'm taking back my my honey, and I'm taking back my milk, and I'm booting you out of the land, and you're going back to Egypt. That's a reversal. And God says, this great reversal is coming upon you because if you want to be like the world, then you can have it. Because God says, you adulterous people, New Testament way of saying it, here's an Old Testament way of saying it, you people of whoredom. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh Uh-oh. And why does he talk like this? It's because Jesus teaches us salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, God has called us to be salt in the world, but if we give up our saltiness in order to become like the world, then what use are we? And so God is saying, look, maintain your saltiness. Or in other words, like I said last week, be weird. It's okay. Be a Christian and be weird and stand out and be different. Because if you lose that, you got nothing left. And so we read in verse 4 through 7, 
that they're going to try to make it right with God when they go to Egypt and they're feeling all the punishment of God. They're going to try to pour out their drink offerings and their sacrifices, but God says, that will not please me. It will be like the mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. In other words, you're going to try to give these offerings and stuff. It's not going to do nothing. And what are you going to do about the day of the appointed festival and the day of the feast of the Lord? Like, what are you going to do about these special holy days that you invented? Behold, they're going away from destruction. Israel's trying to get away from God's discipline, and here's what happens to them. But Egypt shall gather them. Oh, you're welcomed here. Oh, come on. Come on over. Look what I got for you. And then it says, Memphis, a city in Egypt, shall bury them. So here's Israel like, let's go to Egypt. Let's, let's leave this land. God is not for us anymore. Let's do it ourselves. Yeah. And then they head to Egypt, trying to get rid of God's discipline. And when they get to Egypt, Egypt's like, come on, yay. And they kill him. Uh-oh. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. God says, Israel, you don't know me, but there is something you're about to know. You're about to know your destruction. Oh, man, this is like heavy stuff, you know? And then we see in verse, the rest of verse 7, the prophet, God sends the prophets. You remember from chapter 7, God sends the prophets to the people, but when the prophets speak to the people, here's how the people respond. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is crazy. And why do they say stuff like that? It's because of their great iniquity and their great hatred towards God. You see, the prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, and yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred is in the house of God. So you see, God's heart has always been, I will forgive you, I will welcome you. But for whatever reason, the people have decided, nah, we'll do it our own way. They don't return to God with a heartfelt sense of remorse and repentance. Remember Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance? Don't come to me with your sacrifices and your good works, God says. Instead, here's the sacrifices of God. It's a broken spirit. It's a broken and contrite heart. And when we come to God honestly and say, life is hard, I messed up, and here it is, God, you have every right to punish me. God will not despise you. Instead, you will find that you will be welcomed into arms of forgiveness and arms of grace. And then we end in verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. God will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. If I ended right here, man, we're leaving here dejected. Like, dude, bro. But here's why I want us to see all oh, the glories of Jesus. Because God doesn't leave this as the last word. Instead, he speaks to his people of this coming day of a new covenant. For when the new covenant was coming, then everything is going to be changed. So let me show you the new covenant real quickly from Jeremiah, but we're going to quote it from the New Testament because it's a little bit shorter. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. 
And so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. So we need a new covenant because the old one's always obviously not working. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. Do you remember chapter 8, verse 12? If I wrote a thousand laws, they, would, they wouldn't get it. Well, now I'm putting the law in their minds. They're going to get it. I will write it on their hearts. Where now their hearts are just, you know, their love is out like the Bay Area fog in the afternoon. But I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Instead, they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. (laughs) Now, how does this come about? Jesus knew exactly what was up. Let's go quickly through this because it's communion time. So Jesus, he takes bread. And when he gives thanks for it, he breaks it. He gives it to them. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so he takes the cup after they had eaten, and he says, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus said, my life is given for you. So that way you can have the law in your mind. You can have the law in your heart. You can love God as you ought to. A new spirit, the whoredom spirit is gone. The spirit of life has come. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will remember your sins no more. Jesus said, I'm doing that. That's what this means. All right, just in case you don't see it. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He says, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to the disciples, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Look at this. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, gloriously, yes, yes, and yes. Because he was indeed pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brings us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Because he, Jesus, even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, if we come to God with all of our righteous deeds, God's like, nah. But if we come to God empty-handed and say, I have nothing but I plead the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ washes us clean and we stand before God declared righteous in his sight, not because of our efforts, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Christ, who is God in human flesh, he has come upon earth to live for us and to die for us so that he, the righteous one, would substitute himself for us, the unrighteous ones. And here is the goal of it all, brothers and sisters, is so that you and I can be brought into the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy, where there is life everlasting, where there is healing better than you ever imagined, where there is 
the abundance of inexpressible and glorious joy, so much so that all the iniquities and all of the pains and all of the injustices of our former life will be done away with, swallowed up, washed away, and all we will behold is the Lamb of God slain for us. And we will be free. So brothers and sisters, all of us have guilt, I assume many of us have shame. Many of us in this room wonder, could God ever forgive me? God will crush your idols one way or the other, but I'm telling you, it's better to throw those idols and let them drown in the blood of Jesus than it is for you to have to pay for the sins yourself. Relinquish your idols, brothers and sisters. For in God you can be comforted. In God you can get your approval that you seek. In God you will have your safety. In God you have a God who's in control of all things. In God you can be secure. In God you have all that you need for life and godliness and everything else. In God you have everything. Trust him. He is enough. So in Hosea 9, the last word in Hosea was, I'm going to remember all your iniquities and I'm going to punish your sins. Oh, Lord. Lord, help me. I have helped you. Because of Jesus, I will be merciful towards your iniquities, and I will remember your sins no more. That's the great reversal. So, Father, thank you. I don't know what else to say, but thank you, Lord, for your grace. God, thank you for the love with which you have loved us and that you have sent your one and only son to come to earth for us, to die for us, that we may not perish, but we would have everlasting life. It is by the blood of Jesus that we are ransomed. It's by the work of Jesus, who is perfect in every imaginable way, who credits to us his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. And God, you do threaten punishment and you do threaten your wrath for those who will not repent. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for sin. You will not remember our sins. You will forgive us our iniquities. Jesus Christ has paid it all. And now we, your children, are free. God, you have freed us from idolatry. And when we are prone to worship it, Various things, God, would you remind us of these things and, and help to remember that you are greater, you are better. So as we come now to communion and we have a chance to remember your body and your blood given for us, I pray that you meet with us, reassure us, encourage our hearts that you are a God who relentlessly pursues his people with steadfast love and righteousness. You are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. You are a God who is merciful and gracious beyond our wildest imaginations. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, yes. The Lord Jesus invites everyone, everyone who has acknowledged their sin, repented of their sin, to come and to eat and drink in order to remember what it is that he's done for us on our behalf. And so the folks are going to come forward now, and they're going to pass out these elements if you're here today and you have not yet confessed your sin, you have not acknowledged your guilt, you have not yet repented of your sins, I just ask that you let these cups pass by. And it'll help you to realize, just as you're letting Jesus pass by you, you're also letting these cups pass by you. But for those of us who have believed in Jesus, who have repented of our sins and confessed and believed in him,
I invite you to take one of these cups and we're going to eat and drink of it together. If you recall, the Apostle Paul, he writes, you guys can come forward. Thank you. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 11, that he received from the Lord what, what he also is delivering to us, the church, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So brothers and sisters, when we eat and drink this cup, we are not just remembering. But yes, we are remembering, but we are also proclaiming that Jesus' life and death and resurrection is ours. By faith, we have taken hold of it. Forgiveness is ours. Redemption is ours. Cleansing is ours. And so we're going to spend some time now just thinking, praying, and thanking God for all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ. So hang on to this, and we'll eat and drink together in a moment to symbolize our unity as a church. I want to invite you to go ahead and open your chalice. Take the small little 
bread out and place it in your hand. You know, sometimes we have a hard time believing that it could possibly be true, that God could satisfy our souls, that God could actually himself satisfy us and give us everlasting joy. But that's one of the reasons why Jesus came. God really did become a human being. He was really seen, really touched. His voice was really heard. He really was crucified. He really was dead and buried. He really was risen from the dead. People touched him and saw him. He really did rise and ascend to the heavens. He really is coming back. So real, in fact, that as real as this bread is in your hand, all those things are true and real. And so Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Take it, eat it in remembrance of me. So church, let's take and eat in remembrance of him. I invite you to turn and open Jesus said the night when he instituted the Lord's Supper that this wine, or for us, the juice, that it represents his blood, which establishes the new covenant, which is the means by which we have the Spirit of God living in us. It's the means by which we are forgiven of sins. It's the means by which we have the law written on our hearts and minds. It's how we have access to God. And he shed this blood for you. And he wants you to know, this was for you. I did it for you. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. So church, let's drink it in remembrance of Jesus. Father, it seems wholly inadequate to say thank you for what Jesus has done for us. But I don't know many other words that could adequately express the gratitude that we have. And so thanks will have to do. But God, we do thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who willingly and joyfully went to a cross knowing that by his blood he would purchase and ransom people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, that he would make them kingdom, a kingdom and priests to serve you forever. God, we thank you that we are counted among that group of the redeemed. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ. Thank you for its cleansing power. Thank you for how the blood of Jesus washes us. Even our conscience is made clean. And I pray, Lord, that those who are here, God, that we would truly come to you and hear that call to come to you. And as we come to you, Lord, may we find what you promised. Open arms and a heart that loves us. And as we sing this song to close our service, singing of how great you are, I pray indeed in our hearts, Lord, you would cause it to be true and it would come out in the way we sing. God, may our affections match our thoughts of you, and may our thoughts of you 
rightly order our affections. So meet with us as we end this service together as your church with one voice singing together for your glory and our joy. Amen.